0: You know, there's a lot of talk about the Nuremberg trials themselves uh, and when that took place and what exactly was the standard set then. And I think that a a lot of the scientists uh, that were involved in the radiological weapons group were seeing that come out and getting kind of nervous, being like, oh, well, you know, those, those, uh, those experiments we did in the 30s and continue to do now sound a lot like what the Nazis were doing and what we had prosecuted them for. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome
1: back, friends. Welcome back. James Corbett here CorbettReport.com. In a conversation that is being recorded in late July of 2023. It is August of 2023 by the time you're watching this. And today we're going to be talking to a guest who you will be familiar with. We've talked to him a couple of times in the past. Here on The Corbett Report, I'm talking about Patrick McFarlane. Uh, you'll remember we've talked about libertarian legal theory. He's had me on his Liberty Weekly podcast in the past, but now he is at Vitaldescent.com, and he's just released a very zeitgeisty kind of um, documentary, uh, something that touches on the cultural zeitgeist, I should say. It's called The Truth About Oppenheimer, Part 1. All right, Patrick McFarlane, thanks for joining us again today.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, James.
1: All right, let's get into this. What is the truth about Oppenheimer about, and why did you decide to make
0: this? So I this had really been in the works for about a year and a half, and it was really serendipitous um, just kind of happenstance that Christopher Nolan was coming out with a movie, a real blockbuster movie that's been called The Masterpiece by some, James, about uh, the creation of the atomic bomb and Oppenheimer. As a figure in truth, the, the film, I I tried to jump on that moment and jump on that train by calling it the truth about Oppenheimer, but the, the documentary really is about the radiological weapons program that just was happening behind the scenes at the Manhattan project and the human experimentations that were taking place. And it really continued, you know, it started, uh, well, it started in the, the mid 1930s, the, the figures that are, that are at play, the scientists, but it's really following their work from the, ni- the mid-1930s through the Cold War.
1: All right, let's situate everybody in this history just to make sure everyone's on the on board with this. Uh, for people who haven't seen the movie or haven't been thinking about this lately, I think most people understand, of course, the Manhattan Project was the top secret project to develop the atomic weapon there at the end of World War II, and that it was as many um, conspiracy realists will point out, a great example of how some incredibly massive project can take place behind the scenes without it being widespread knowledge. Um, having said that, most people I think probably do associate the Manhattan Project pretty exclusively with with Oppenheimer and what was going on at Los Alamos, but actually the Manhattan Project was a lot larger than that, and you're talking about a kind of a, a separate subgroup of the Manhattan Project. Tell tell us about the Manhattan Project in general, how it was structured and where this radiological weapons group that you're talking about fits into that organizational
0: structure. So the, the Manhattan Project was actually a bunch of different facilities across the United States. It was Los Alamos. It was the Oak Ridge facility. It was UC Berkeley. It was UC Rochester and the Met Lab at Chicago. There were other facilities that were coordinated as well. Uh, But specifically, there's this idea of compartmentalization, James, that you talk about a lot in a a lot of your work. Um, You know, a lot of these scientists had no idea what exactly they were working on and didn't know until they heard about Hiroshima on the radio. And I I think, you know, even Oppenheimer himself, of course, he knew what the goal of the project was, but he didn't know that the military was going to drop it and, and had dropped the bomb until he heard about it himself on the radio. So, the radiological weapons group, there, there was an idea hatched by Oppenheimer, but also, uh, as I allude to in the film, maybe hatched by uh, Robert Heinlein, possibly, kind of seeded into science fiction in a very interesting kind of part of this whole thing. Um, but radiological weapons, in thinking about weapons of mass destruction, it came across brainstorming ideas, and maybe this came from Robert S. Stone, who is someone you'll meet in the film, a figure uh, this idea to use what we would know today as being a dirty bomb, something that is a conventional explosive that is laced with uh, radioactive material that is used to deny uh, area or installations to the enemy, be it uh, civilian infrastructure or military infrastructure. So, behind the scenes, there was a lot of discussion and correspondence and started, uh, continued, and, and kind of uh, directed by Oppenheimer himself hey, we need to come up with this, these ideas to kill people and deny area to the enemy. Well, maybe radi- you know, using radiation death dust as a weapon is something we should be looking into.
1: Right. So the idea was rather than unlocking the power of the atom in the atomic bomb or ultimately the hydrogen bomb and causing the huge explosion, the big nuclear explosion, the idea was to uh, use a conventional explosive to send out radiological, radioactive waste material, essentially material that would then presumably de- debilitate, cause cancers, kill someone in 20 years. Uh, what what really were they thinking what might be the possible outcomes
0: of, of such a weapon? Um, well, I think, you know, based off of Oppenheimer's correspondence, the idea was to kill mass numbers of people. I mean, that's something he states directly in some of his correspondence. Um, in 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 reference to I you know like like you James I try to cite everything in my transcript and provide hyperlinks, but a lot of this came from books itself and primary sources. But behind the fog by Lisa Martino Taylor is something I referenced a lot. Um, also the Plutonium Files by Eileen Welsum, who's someone I want to give uh, tribute to in in one of the parts of this documentary series. But yeah, so the idea was. We can kill a lot of people with this, but we can also deny uh, installations and infrastructure uh, to the enemy itself. It's like, you know, imagine creating your own Chern- uh, Chernobyl event. And I think, I mean, the relevance of this is continues on through this day, as you see in Ukraine right now, all this talk of, um, you know, the the nuclear facility that's been going back and forth, well, mostly held by Russia, but also all these warnings that, well, you know, Putin might use a dirty bomb or something like that in Ukraine, and that would trigger Article 5. Um, So just continuing relevance. Absolutely. All right. So as you've alluded to, obviously Oppenheimer
1: did have a part to play in this, but he was certainly not the only person involved in this. Introduce us to the cast of characters that were involved in this particular subgroup of the Manhattan Project
0: yeah and, and one of one of the most difficult parts about this, James, is just the deluge of information and knowing you know what to leave on the cutting room floor and what to include and how to do that in a package that people would uh, kind of understand and grasp and be able to follow. But I think the two most notorious figures other than Oppenheimer himself would be Robert Spencer Stone um, and uh, Joseph G. Hamilton, two scientists that uh, studied and worked with each other at the University of California, Berkeley through the 1930s, uh, performing uh, radio-sodium experim- experiments. Uh, some, some of the first experiments where they were, you know, of course this was a new technology uh, dealing with radioactivity. And in the beginning, at least, they had talked about trying to find biomedical applications for this device known as a cyclotron. Um, and, and this was a new thing, of course. They were creating these radioisotopes uh at the at these universities using the cel- cyclotron and one of the main kind of thrusts was to understand its effects on the human body but to develop these biomedical applications and i i try not to say what i think that these scientists were driven by because of course who really knows but looking at the context of it um at least their colleagues at the time some of them were saying that these experiments they were they were embarking upon were stunts and maybe it was to further their own careers. Maybe it was to try to push the envelope and and get, uh, you know, become famous scientists for making these discoveries. But um, at any rate, they ended up, um, you know, they had these tracer experiments where they were trying to figure out how fast the human body excreted radioactivity. So they would have subjects drink radioactive sodium, and they would put the subject's hand in a lead-lined box with a Geiger counter and try to see how long it took for the Geiger counter to pick up the radioactive sodium. So one thing that's for certain, and I want to explore this a little bit further in part two, but to see what exactly was the, uh, the standard practice at the time of informing subjects of the risks of a certain procedure. Because I do throw around the term informed consent Um, But there there was a Supreme Court case in the 70s called Canterbury versus Spence that really made informed consent the like the standard of care. But it's it's on it's unsure because, you know, there's a lot of talk about the Nuremberg trials themselves and when when that took place and what exactly was the standard set then. And I think that a, a lot of the scientists uh, that were involved in the radio, uh, radiological weapons group were seeing that come out and getting kind of nervous, being like, oh, well, you know, those those uh, those experiments we did in the 30s and continue to do now sound a lot like what the Nazis were doing and what we had prosecuted them for. So, um, sorry, I got a little away there from talking about the cast. There's several other figures as well. Um, um, Louis Hempelman was one uh, who was the director of the medical center at Los Alamos. And he was one who had also engaged in um, these radiological experiments in the 1930s on his own. And I, I won't you know, go into detail of everything, but this common thread started showing up, uh, James, of these individuals who ended up being involved uh, intimately with the Manhattan Project and a history of a demonstrated interest and ability to go through and do these questionable experiments. No, I appreciate your your diversion there because
1: I think it is incredibly important to point out um, for the the hard of thinking or people who don't just have never thought about it um, that not only is there the <coughs> excuse me the question of informed consent when it comes to these experiments, but also just the basic medical principle to do no harm. Um, of course, these these medical experiments had nothing no conceivable medical benefit to anyone involved in them and could only actually produce risk and potential harm to the participants. Um, talk about some of the ethical struggles involved in these experiments and, and did anybody at any point display any sort of uh, uh trepidation about what was going on.
0: You know it's it's unclear as to whether they they really I mean there were there were certainly colleagues who had like I, I alluded to before who had Mentioned, you know, maybe should we be doing this? What is the benefit of this? Um, but I, I went through and I pulled the actual published studies from Robert Stone and Joseph Hamilton, and one of them in particular, James, was uh, exposing patients from the Visible Tumor Clinic at the um, University of California, San Francisco Medical Center. They took these patients, they took them to the cyclotron and exposed them to the the beams in an effort to you know, in some way, maybe you could argue that it was visionary in some way because, you know, I don't know too much about cancer treatment, but I do know that radiation is part of it. And I'm sure it's advanced since this kind of primitive barbaric state uh, that they had had done this. But uh, Robert Stone, he took about 60 patients, I believe, um, and he exposed them to, to radiation in the beams to see what would happen. And about half of them died within six months. Now, they all had advanced cancers, so it's a little unclear to say that he killed all those people, but at the same time, his own research does indicate, well, you know, 12 of them, and I'm going off memory here, but 12 of them were so ill to begin with that they probably shouldn't have been treated. And there was another part where he was saying, well, um, they died because they they um they couldn't eat anymore because they were either so sick or they had swelling and bruising that prevented them from eating and at one point he complains about the medical facilities that they were in that they couldn't provide adequate care and you're just sitting here thinking like well maybe you shouldn't have done it then i mean if if you you're kind of shifting the blame off of yourself and and so it, it's clear in some like limited cases, the, the tumors did shrink, but he severely underestimated the collateral damage that would take place in these as well. And in hindsight, I did pull cite a New York Times article that was talking about how uh, the Atomic Energy Commission later on had condemned these experiments that he he pulled off. And so you're just kind of thinking about specifically when it comes to uh, Lewis Hempelman. When he he was 29 years old when he became the medical director at Los Alamos, uh, which to me, I'm 29 right now. And it really, I mean, I, I am a practicing attorney. I've been practicing for five years, but it really makes me think this person was probably, I mean, he wasn't too far removed from medical school and now he's being headed, you know, this project where his responsibility is to uh, manage and research the exposure of scientists to radiation, which is not at all really understood. And he only had two or three years of experience working with radiation itself. So he becomes, um, he, he tracks all of the his fellow scientists as they're being exposed. Some of them are having uh, adverse effects. And you do see some, I think, some, he's cognizant in some way of of the moment he's in, because there was one scientist and this is really what kind of spurred it um who was working with the plutonium and he broke a vial containing like almost all the plutonium that they had at Los Alamos and it went into his mouth and the kind of the records indicate that Hempelman was in a panic and he was uh he was calling Leslie Grove saying what do i do what do i do and so they they pumped the scientist's stomach, and they had him go through his stomach contents and separate the plutonium because it was so valuable at the time. But but I think the panic that Hempelman went through, it humanizes him a little bit because I feel like I'm making these moral judgments about him 80 you know, or so years removed about it, but it, it makes you kind of wonder— if, how he compartmentalized this emotion in injecting people with plutonium and other radioactive like heavy metals what must he have been thinking i just don't know It's a fascinating question. It's a fascinating history and
1: an underexplored one. So I I salute you for giving some attention to this and drawing attention to it away from the, uh, the zeitgeisty topic of Oppenheimer and towards some of the other things that were going on as part of this program. But I don't want to do disservice to the work that you've done by simply talking about it and rehashing all of the points. I want people to go watch this. So obviously, the link will be in the show notes so that people can go and watch this directly and get it get it the way that it's meant to be got, as it were, at vitaldescent.com slash Oppenheimer. The link will be in the show notes so that people can go and follow that. Um, but this is part one, as we have alluded to several times in this conversation. So presumably there are more
0: parts to come. Tell us about that. So part one, I really went in and kind of gave the context of like, what is the, the Manhattan Project? How was it set up? who are the people at play, and what is radiological weapons, because I, I didn't know before I started doing this, and I assume that the audience doesn't know either. Uh, I think I would like to give a little more detail on exactly how the radiological weapons group formed, because I, I mention it in part one, and I go through the the individuals involved, but how did it coalesce? And then we will dive right into the plutonium injection experiments and the the other there were other heavy metals that were injected as well into people. And so so go through that, detail some of the actual individuals who were injected and and what how that all transpired. And um, I am planning a part three. Uh, well, part two as well, I think I want to go into like some of the Army chemical Corps exper- uh, experiments in the Cold War, some more some more of that stuff like the zinc cadmium sulphide aerosol dispersal, that's a whole nother can of worms, James. But um, the Army Chemical Corps basically went around a lot of mid-sized cities in the U.S. in, I think, the 60s and had these huge blowers, and they were doing a biological, uh, like a bio-warfare tracer experiment, where they just dispersed zinc cadmium sulfide in the air off these big blowers. Um, so go into that a bit, because it's all kind of interrelated in the inner workings of it. But then in part three, um, I really wanted to um, cover Eileen Welsom, who was someone who wrote this book, the plutonium Files, an investigative journalist who really did like the Yeoman's work pouring through documents, doing FOIA requests and actually tracking down the victims here and um, and giving them you know airing all of this. And then in the 90s there was a congressional inquest and I, I had sent you a, a link, James when we were talking before about how they detail it on their website, and I think there's a few things in there that they really try to they they play cover and try to downplay it a little bit, uh, just my opinion. But also, James, like the the downwinders, this is something that wasn't covered by Oppenheimer at all. And like I understand that Christopher Nolan's trying to create a movie that has a compelling, um, you know, but we 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 know how, like for instance, with Saving Private Ryan, how the, the Department of Defense gets involved with their advisors and then has, like, um, power to to go through the script and suggest changes and things like that. So, um, But, you know, the downwinders, all the people who were exposed to radiation during the Trinity test, I mean, there were 50,000 people who lived within the area, and um, many of them were adversely affected by this. But I think it's so important just to, to mention their stories and uh, to really spread that knowledge. Excellent. Well, as someone who's done a little bit of this kind of
1: documentary making, filmmaking in the past, I will refrain from asking the dreaded question, when will part 2 be out? But I just to give people a sense, we are probably talking months in the future rather than weeks, is that correct?
0: Yeah, that is that is correct. I mean, I'm I'm optimistically trying to say the end of September, um but, you know, realistically it might be October, but But certainly as soon as I can, you know, working on it. Yeah. Well, trust me, I can appreciate uh, how much
1: work goes into uh, a highly edited, very slick, very well-produced little documentary like this. People might think it's, uh, well, it's only half an hour. (laughs) No, it takes months and months of writing and research and recording and editing. And uh, so I I appreciate the work that went into this. And let me absolutely salute you for doing what I can't believe everyone isn't already doing, but... I'm glad you're doing it. The hyperlinked transcript. What an incredibly useful research tool. So now when I need to n- remember those details about the radiological weapons group, I'll just go to vitaldescent.com slash Oppenheimer. All the links are there. You've got the, even the page citation references for the various books that
0: you're quoting from, etc. Excellent. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, thank you, James. Of, of course, you know, I, I've, I, I have modeled my, my work after yours, and you know, I've been watching you for a long time. So thank you. And I guess the final question, have, have you seen Oppenheimer? <laughs> Actually, no, I haven't. Um, I really want to, but my uh, you know, we welcomed our third child a couple weeks ago, and um, I've got more important to, things <laughs> to do present.: to. Yes. <laughs> I had an opportunity, but it didn't work out, and it, it'll happen. You, you know what's funny? I couldn't
1: see it even if I did want to, because for reasons that I'll, I'll leave you to a. To, to speculate on they're not showing Oppenheimer in Japan uh, around August for some reason I'm assuming it will be released later this year but certainly not around the time of the anniversary so I couldn't see it even if I wanted to but I can see this documentary for free today in fact I already have so I hope that people in the audience who are interested in this in any shape way shape or form will at least check it out uh, other than that um Patrick tell tell people about vital descent
0: yeah, so I've been doing, um, I switched over from Liberty Weekly to Vital Dissent uh, maybe a year ago, uh, but I, I didn't want to be kind of burdened by kind of the the liberty kind of thing because I was a libertarian podcast pretty primarily, but I've been covering a lot uh, geopolitics mostly lately and really wanted to focus on something that was in that theme but also appealed to people who aren't just libertarians. Um, because I think that there's plenty of single issue coalitions to be made uh, with really with really good leftists who, in in many cases, know foreign policy and are concerned about what I think is the most important issue, but know it and are passionate about it, and uh, I think are are good bedfellows for for going on activism and, and engaging in that as well. So, vitaldissent.com. I'm also the Justin Raimondo Fellow at the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org. Uh, right now, we we actually, I don't know if it will be when we're uh, filming this, but we're currently doing our fundraiser um, right now. When it comes out, I'm not sure. It'll still be going on, but head on over to forward slash donate there. Uh, we really could use your support. And actually, the funds that I use to pay my producer uh, come from the funds that I get from the Institute. So it directly goes right to uh, producing more content and getting part two out there for you guys to watch. And so... Shout out to Mises Pieces. He's incredible. Couldn't do it without him. He's my Brock West. And um, I really am grateful for him.
1: Yes, yes. As uh, someone who has an excellent video editor, I can, <laughs> I can attest that is a good thing to have in your back pocket. All right. Excellent. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, it, anyone who hasn't already clicked out of our conversation and, and onto the link to watch The Truth About Oppenheimer, what are you doing? Go watch that. But we'll leave it there for today. Patrick McFarland, thanks again for coming on.
0: Thanks much, James.